0: Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, that's certainly okay. We do have some Bibles on the back table here that you can grab and follow along with this morning, but we're going to be resuming our study in Mark's gospel. We're in chapter 8. We're going to wrap that up today uh, so we kind of bring a really important section of mark's gospel into the forefront in many ways i would say this is kind of like the peak point of mark's gospel so we're going to unpack that a little bit more this morning yeah what's that the calendars and stuff you can just put them on the table area back here that's fine thank you i appreciate you asking so mark chapter 8 is where we are going to be uh this morning so if you are open to it go ahead and stand we're going to read from mark chapter 8 Starting in verse 22. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22, says this And they, that being Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him into his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You be seated. Let's pray. Ask for God's favor on our study together this morning. Our Father, we do thank you again for the privilege to be here today. These these mornings are just a sweet privilege for us each and every week to gather together to hear what you have to say Uh, we have a lot of voices in our lives throughout the week everything from teachers coaches to parents to friends to the media there's a lot of things that are seeking to to influence us to to drive us in certain directions and so i pray that this morning as we look at the life of christ and we see the message that he presents here that lord we would see very clearly what it is that is expected of us to follow after him. That is something that is supernatural. It's something that I'm unable to do on my own, so we need your Spirit's help as we seek to unpack it together this morning. So please bless our time, we ask now, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, How many of you uh, in this room like to go to the dentist? Maybe you actually enjoy going to the dentist. Allison, that's not fair. Your dad's a dentist, okay. Is he your dentist too, by the way? Okay, that'd be, is he not? Wait, why are you thinking about it? Is he your dentist? well That is one of the most confusing answers, okay, so. I just think it would be really telling if your dad was a dentist and you chose not to have him as a dentist. So that'd be interesting, okay. So most of you don't really care for the dentist, which I would expect. How many of you like going to the doctor's office? How many of you like getting shots? How many of you don't mind shots? Okay. Neutral? Okay, a little bit more. So when I was a kid, you know, you think about usually doctors like, you know, going to the dentist, didn't like it so much. You think about uh, going to Uh, get your wellness checks and getting shots and stuff. Don't like it so much. For me, those things were, were okay. Uh, the, the doctor that I actually really disliked going to when I was a kid was the eye doctor, uh, which is really ironic, right? Because you'd think to yourself, well, that doesn't feel like such a big deal. Well, you know, experiences at eye doctors tend to, uh, scar you, I feel like for life. Uh, when i was in like middle school in the high school we we saw a is optometrist is that the word for it I keep saying eye doctor like that's a, optometrist we saw uh at like one of those walmart uh places and he always made me feel bad for not being able to see like as if i was supposed to somehow improve like i didn't study ahead of time and so it always was like like he was exasperated that, that I didn't see better. I'm like, isn't this your job? Isn't this like you're supposed to just help me so that I can do this? So that, that was not good. But I'd say the, the part of the, uh, the whole experience that really did it in for me was, and maybe you can relate, it's that fun little uh, gizmo that they put you in where you have to put your head into the device and they're like, hey, look at this picture far off. And you're like, okay, what am I supposed to see? And then before you know it, it goes Poof! And it shoots you in the eye with a puff of air, right? Almost knocks you off the, the thing because you're like, what in the world just happened? Right? That's uh, I, I still to this day have zero idea what that actually has to do with being able to see. Although I think deep down, my theory is that just they just – do it for kicks and giggles because their job is so hard and so it's like well we need some type of entertainment it was actually funny earlier this year i got to watch uh one of our two girls do this for the first time so i got to be in the parent seat and watch it happen because she didn't know it was going to happen and the reaction on her face was priceless because she thought it was going to be something really cool and then it was just like nope don't want to do that again ever again ever again but of course the the, the highlight of a visit to the optometrist, is when you finally actually get into the room and they put that cool little device over you so that you can start to toggle through the, the different lenses so that your eyes adjust to the clarity that they need to be. You know, the whole better, worse, better, worse. And sometimes you're like, oh, it looks the same. But other times it's a pretty stark difference from what was unclear, to then maybe a little bit fuzzy, to now what is perfectly clear. Such is the idea that we're going to look at this morning in Mark's gospel as it relates to Jesus. In fact, uh, the point that I think Mark is trying to, to drive home here in this section is this idea that by opening your eyes, Jesus shows you what it really looks like to follow him. By opening your eyes, and when Jesus opens your eyes, he begins to show you what it really looks like to follow him. Because if you remember, it was a few weeks ago, I know since we've been in here, but back in verses 11 to 21, the the section right before this, uh, we have Jesus warning the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is a really interesting phrase. But do you remember what was it? that Jesus was particularly warning his disciples about the dangers of what was it Do you remember It was the threat of what called spiritual what mm-hmm. You don't know I thought you remember you now. Well, um, blindness that's what I that's I know you'd be confident <laughs> Just say it. Go for it. You're good. Spiritual blindness, right? So you had the disciples who were missing what was right before them. This influence of the Pharisees who were rejecting Jesus outright, just uh, not believing in him. They wanted a sight without faith. Uh, he was seeing that influence gradually having its effect on the disciples and saying, you need to watch out for this. This is very a very real threat to you. you you've you just seen these miracles that I'm able to do, and yet you forget the fact that I'm right here with you in the boat. You want food, but you lack faith because of your focus on the mundane matters of this world. Spiritual blindness is an incredible threat to our ability to follow Jesus. But today, we're going to see the scales begin to fall off. Some of the confusion and the mystery surrounding Jesus' identity is going to become known to the disciples. But even that sight will be imperfect, as we're going to see shortly. And as a whole, this section of Mark, including what we're going to look at next week, is one giant movement. From darkness into light for the disciples on the true identity of Jesus. And as he reveals himself, he more clearly defines what it looks like to follow him. So let's look at that now together this morning, and beginning in verses 22 to 26. If you have your sheets with you, you can fill these in as we go along this morning. But we see in verses 22 to 26, an object lesson in sight. Uh, The way that Jesus is going to begin to help us understand this here is he's going to give an example of this. He's going to give kind of a a real-life illustration of this. And it's really significant that Mark situates the story right here to begin to explain this unfolding of being able to truly see Jesus. We learn here that this uh, boat expedition that they're on uh, touches shore in Bethsaida. Uh, Bethsaida was a little town located on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Pretty much just only accessed by boat, not by land. So this is a unique way to to certainly get there. But one thing we need to know about Jesus' ministry in this section is that this ministry in Bethsaida and then in the account after this in Caesarea Philippi, these are what we would call spiritually dark places. Spiritually dark places. Places, which kind of feeds into this idea of moving from blindness towards sight. Bethsaida is mentioned by Jesus in, in, in Matthew's Gospel in 11, uh, chapter eleven, verse twenty-one, where Jesus actually pronounces kind of like judgment against Bethsaida. He says, "Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed entire uh, performed in you were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented." In other words, Jesus had performed miracles. He had done amazing things in this region before, and yet they were not repenting. They were hard. They were blind to what he was doing. Same thing with Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a region about 25 25 miles north of here where the emperor Caesar was celebrated as uh, some type of Lord, as some type of kind of deity. And there was also a cave sanctuary dedicated to the Greek God Pan, which is why they originally actually called that region Panion. And so you see Jesus entering in here into this region where there is plenty of spiritual blindness and darkness, but it's not just that there is spiritual blindness, there's also physical blindness. Because once we see him touch down and he actually gets here into the city, they bring to him a blind man. They bring to him a blind man and they're begging Jesus to touch him. Somehow they've heard about Jesus and his works and uh, they want Jesus to heal him, right? Good, Good and a reasonable request. But I think as you look at the story here, Jesus does three very interesting things. Three really interesting things. First, notice that he takes the man out of the city. He doesn't perform the miracle right there in the city. He takes him and he moves him out of the city. Again, perhaps because of some of the hardness of heart amongst those people, he was not there to entertain them with miracles, but he was there to do a work and to show compassion To reveal his true identity to these people. So he first takes them out of the city. But notice how does he take them out of the city? Look at the verse again. How does he take them out of the city? What does he do? You're allowed to talk. Today's the day allowed for talking. What does he do? He took took them by the hand. Isn't that really interesting? What you see here is that Jesus doesn't just lead this parade out of the town, right? He doesn't say, okay, guys, get your blind friend and follow me. We're going to go somewhere else. What does Jesus do? No, he goes over to the blind man and he takes him by the hand. And it says that he personally walks with this guy out of the sea. I just, again... We, we sometimes rush past these accounts and we don't tend to see the intimate and compassionate heart of Jesus for people who are broken and in hard places. He personally walks with this guy. I, I couldn't help as I was uh, looking at this passage this week, thinking about our time in San Francisco a few weeks ago. Uh, do you guys remember, what was the name of the blind guy who was there? What was it, Michael? Yeah, there was a guy named Michael. And it was so awesome because Michael... Uh, Michael became really good friends with Maddie Jenkins while we were there, and so he like personally asked Maddie to kind of like escort him around the facility that we were there. And I couldn't help but think about that beautiful picture while I see Jesus doing this with this guy, just taking him by the hand and leading him where he needs to go. But then the third interesting thing in this passage: notice that this miracle that Jesus performs for this guy. This is no LASIK surgery where he gets lasers shot into his eyeballs. No, rather, he spits into this guy's eyeballs, right? You're like, if man, the physical touch of walking this guy out wasn't enough, now he gets the saliva to the eyeball treatment, right? Uh, and there's a lot of mixed reasons as to why jesus would do this this way there was actually some uh common understanding back in this day that there was something about uh saliva that actually was used for for healing and processing people who actually were dealing with eye ailments i don't know it's very strange i can't say to you i have a perfect answer for it but there. it's very clear there's no power in the saliva alone this the power is in the touch of christ and this certainly is one of the strangest of jesus's healings because if not the strangest because we we may think that due to the uh uh, we we may think that it's due to the fact that he uses spit but he did that back in chapter 7 too do you remember he did this for the death man as well but stranger is the fact that jesus's first touch does not completely heal the guy of his blindness. After touching his eyes, Jesus asks the guy if he sees anything. What do you see? And what does he see? He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. For all you Lord of the Rings fans, you're like, oh, that's awesome. I I know trees walking. That's, That's there. But this is one of the only times you see Jesus performing a miracle, but it doesn't actually have a full effect. Like the autometrist toggling the switch, the images go from blurry to crystal clear. And so eventually Jesus touches him again and he, he receives his full sight back. And so we ask ourselves, why does Jesus do this? Why was this like a two-phase healing? Why does he touch him one time? And it's moved from darkness to blurriness, and then touches him again and goes from blurry to crystal clear. Was this disease too powerful for Jesus to overcome in the first place? No. I think Mark's placement, again, of this story is strategic. Because the previous account was of the threat of spiritual blindness, not seeing Jesus for who he really is paving the way for their own eyes to be open to Jesus. And this unfolding of moving from darkness to a lack of clarity, but seeing him more to ultimately, finally, truly understanding him. And that begins to be unfolded here in the second movement where we see the fitting profession of faith. The fitting profession of faith. They move now from Bethsaida and they go up north about 25 miles to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And as they travel through, Jesus throws out a conversation starter, right? Perhaps you've been on a road trip before, and you throw out, like, hey, this is, this is a conversation starter. This is a game. Let's, let's, let's see where this goes. And the conversation starter is a question. Who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? What's the talk around the water cooler these days? What's the scuttle buzz? What's trending about me on social media? They didn't have social media in case you were wondering. Or water coolers for that matter. And the disciples begin to share all kinds of theories about what people are saying about Jesus. You know, some are like, well, kind of like John, some people say John the Baptist, you know, you're, you're a preacher, you're calling for repentance. Uh, so some people say John the Baptist. Some people say uh, Elijah. After all, Elijah was this great uh, miracle worker, prophet of the Old Testament. He didn't die, God took him to heaven. So, you know, there's a theory out there about maybe Elijah or maybe one of the other Old Testament prophets. But here's the deal. Jesus isn't concerned about what other people think of who he is. He doesn't ask this question because he's genuinely, uh, genuinely concerned about what the media is saying about who he is. What he really wants to know is who you believe he is. And so he asks that to the disciples. But who do you say that I am? I understand what the world is saying. I hear what you're saying about what the world's perception is of me. I'm not interested in that. What I want to know is for you personally, who do you say that I am? Fittingly, Peter, we put our money on Peter, right? Peter pipes up and he says, you are the Christ. Christ. By saying the, the Christ there, that's the, the, the Greek word for that word, uh, Messiah, the anointed one, the one who uh, the Old Testament points to that says this guy is going to be the deliverer of God's people. He's going to save the nation of Israel. He's going to usher in a kingdom of righteousness. This is who you are. man. Peter is the first human character to ever make that profession of faith. Beginning to take that step to be seeing who Jesus really is. And so we ask ourselves, who opened Peter's eyes to see this? Did he just one day wake up and just, boom, have a clear perspective saying, oh, this must be who Jesus is. I finally get it. How are any of us able to see Jesus for who he is? Mark doesn't say this, but if you were to jump over to Matthew's account of this in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus' response to Peter is not, Blessed are you, Peter, because you finally got it. You finally studied hard enough. You finally memorized enough verses. Man, you finally get it. That's not what Jesus says, is it? No, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, Simon, Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but who? My Father in heaven. My Father in heaven has opened your eyes to this truth. Who is Jesus? Jesus. This is the question that's been building from since the very first verse in Mark's gospel. Very first line, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God. Mark has spent the entire first 8 chapters of this book trying to get to this point of this confession that Jesus is the Christ that he is the son of God. This is the hinge point of the gospel where now everything will build off of this profession of faith and what that actually means. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because even though Peter is right in his profession and what he proclaims about Jesus, we quickly realize he does not have perfectly clear vision. He does not have a full accurate perspective of what the christ is and who he is supposed to be just like the blind man who was healed initially so that he saw people who were like uh, trees walking he began to see more of the picture but it was lacking focus and like the blind man he needs more correction so that he can see clearly which leads us to the third movement here a necessary correction by jesus Now that the truth of his identity is out in the open among his disciples, Jesus begins to freely share with them the purpose of his mission. This is something that he had not done before. And that purpose for him, as we read about in verses 31 to 33, includes rejection. It includes suffering. And it includes death. It includes dying. He mentions the resurrection. He mentions, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be back to life. The disciples appear deaf to that detail. But Mark draws our attention to the manner in which Jesus says all this. In verse 32, it says that Jesus said this plainly to them. This is like when mom and dad maybe speak to you, and they begin by saying this, uh, let me make myself clear, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? If it's not that, they say something along those lines that you're like, oh, okay, better listen to this. He's not mincing any words here. He's saying, be very clear, this is what is going to happen. The problem for the disciples is that their theology of the Messiah does not include a dead Savior, but rather a victorious one who triumphs over Israel's enemies. Again, just seeing part of the picture. And they begin to wonder, maybe Jesus doesn't know this. Maybe Jesus doesn't know the fullness of the Old Testament Scriptures. Maybe he doesn't understand what the Messiah is actually meant to be. And so Peter, being the wise, insightful one that he now is, right, the one who made this proper profession, uh, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, listen, Jesus, put his arm around him, right? Jesus, listen, if you're the Messiah, you don't have to do any of that. That's That's not necessary. Here's what the Messiah truly is. And when Jesus hears Peter say this, and he sees that all his disciples are looking at him and tuning into this and almost maybe nodding their heads in agreement, he decides it's time for a necessary correction. And he turns Peter's rebuke on its head, and it says he rebukes Peter in return. And the rebuke is strong, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Why does Jesus say this to Peter? Peter's not actually Satan here, obviously. But in this moment, his mind was set on the very strategy that Satan is bent towards. It is the strategy to keep the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 from crushing the head of the serpent. It is to distract Jesus from his earthly mission, just like he tried to do at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Do you remember the temptation in the wilderness? Matthew expands upon that even more. It is to give Jesus the crown of victory without the cross. Now, let me ask you this. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that such a big deal? I mean, why couldn't Jesus just skip the cross and just appoint himself the Messiah, appoint himself the king, the ruler of God's people? Couldn't he just do that? Why was it important that he not skip that? What do you think? Why was this necessary? What do you think? Crown without the cross sounds pretty good. Yeah, Allison. Um, What's that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There would be no forgiveness of sins, would there? right? There would be no victory over sin. There would be no payment for our sin. You all would still be dead in your sins. There would be no victory also over death, right? Because his death and then his resurrection were necessary for him to triumph over the enemy of death. So death would be the final chapter for you. And of course, there would be no victory over the power of Satan, his evil reign it is what I would say the easy path which is why Jesus says you have your mind set on the things of man rather than the things of God because the things of man always look for the easy path not the hard and right path so what then is the hard path well Jesus describes it in this final movement here. It's the right direction to follow. Recognizing that his disciples have a glaring misconception of what it means to follow him, Jesus calls them in for a chat. He says, hey, gather in. Huddle up. We need to talk about this. And he says to them, your idea of following me is too worldly. You think that following me means that I'm just going to make life easy for you, going to get all these riches and all this glory and all this honor. And if we're honest, some of us think about following Jesus the same way as well, don't we? Think that, man, Jesus is really the path to the good life. Jesus is the path to making me happy. He's a good tack on for my own personal advancements in life. I can use Jesus maybe to advance myself somehow in life. Jesus is great because of everything he is allowing me to achieve. Now, I want to be very clear about something. It's not wrong for the disciples and even for us to desire victory, freedom over our enemies, a glorious kingdom, And to be sure, those who follow Jesus will ultimately have victory. They will have freedom over all evildoers, as well as sin and death. Praise God for all of that. And they can certainly look forward to a day when Jesus will establish a kingdom of righteousness where there is no more sin, there is no more pain, there is no more unrighteousness. But so often, student, listen, so often... We desire to jump to the end point without going through all the stuff in between. And Jesus says, listen, the stuff that gets you there is part of the process and it's part of the good nature of God to refine you and to grow you and to better appreciate what's ahead. What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? Well, Jesus says in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up at His cross and follow me. What does it look like to actually follow Jesus? Well, following Jesus means, first, you must deny yourself. And by denying yourself, I mean you have to stop clinging to your pride. You have to stop clinging to your pride. What we mean by that is you have to stop pursuing your own agenda and your own ambitions. In other words, to truly follow Jesus means your life is not first and foremost about you. You don't live anymore to make much of your life. Your life is not about your agenda. Your life is about what makes much of Jesus. And that pride also that so many of us cling on to is that pride that says, I'm the one in control of my life, and I'm the one who knows what's best for my life, and... Somehow I'm the one who's going to be a self-deliverer. That somehow I'm going to contribute to what it means to truly be saved. That if I can just be good enough, if I can just do enough works, if I can just be a good enough person, then that will earn my way forward. And Jesus says, absolutely not. To deny yourself is to lay it all down. Surrender it all. But it's not just... Letting go and clinging, stop clinging to your pride. It's also about carrying your cross, which means you stop clinging to your life. Stop clinging to your life. The disciples understood this literally, not metaphorically. Sometimes in our culture we like to say, well, man, to carry my cross means I have these burdens in life that I have to carry. And if that's you, just stop that. It's not about burdens. It's, the disciples would have understand the cross for what it was. The cross was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of death. It was the cruelest, most embarrassing, most shameful way to die in the ancient world. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to follow me, you must be willing to even surrender your very life. Am I worth it to you? Am I greater than your very life? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. I'll put it in a question like this. Is safety your greatest priority? And that's a really important question because we've had to wrestle with that the last three years, haven't we? Is our greatest priority in life preserving our life as long as possible? Is safety and security the name of the game for Christians? Is your life all about self-preservation? Because if it is, you cannot be my follower. If your life is that important to you, you cannot follow me. It's a high call. It's a high call. And it reorients our mind to think about what Jesus means to truly follow him. Again, spiritual blindness threatens our ability to follow Jesus, but when Jesus begins to open our eyes, we see him for who he really is and what it really means to follow him. And so as we look at the passage this morning, we think to ourselves, well, what does this mean? What are some things that we need to think about? Well, if you look at some of your application points on the back, some of the things we need to consider, first of all, is the very question that Jesus presents to his disciples here. Who do you say that I am? It's not a question of what kind of Jesus do you want. It's not a question of what type of Jesus do you prefer. What's your vision of an ideal Jesus? What are you looking for in a savior? It's really a question of honest evaluation. Because too often we're in the business of making Jesus into our own image. Who do the people say that I am? What does the world want Jesus to be? molding Jesus around our preferences rather than our lives being molded around who he really is. I'll be honest, too many of us want a small Jesus so that we can remain big in our lives. But I honestly ask you this morning, who do you say Jesus is? Do you see him as the all-powerful God? Do you see his authority as ultimate yet good for your life? Or do you see Jesus as distant and uninterested in your life? Do you see him as someone who is okay with your sin so that you can justify living in disobedience? Who do you say Jesus really is? You have to answer that question. And my hope is that you begin to see Jesus for the good and compassionate Savior that we have unpacked for eight chapters up to this point first, who do you say Jesus is? Secondly, you have to understand this. Sin naturally desires the path of least resistance and the seat of greatest honor. Sin naturally desires the path of least resistance and the seat of greatest honor. We see this in Peter's rebuke of Jesus, what it looks like to, to desire the crown without the cross, constantly tempted to crave safety and security. And likewise, we see often the disciples' argumentation about who is the greatest, right? If you were looking at other places in the Gospels, how often do we see the disciples kind of clamoring for prominence, even within Jesus' followers, and Jesus is always going back to them saying, what are you doing? My kingdom is not about advancement, of being first above your peers. Your pride is getting to you here. This is not what it's about. It's not about having the seat of greatest honor. It's not about pursuing the least uh, painful and suffering path. So often we view Christianity with the questions in mind of, is it all worth it or what's in it for me? And that's what sin and temptation will do. It can be tempting to think this way, and we must fight against this by focusing our sight on the true nature of Jesus, which reminds us that you cannot see Jesus clearly apart from his death and resurrection. That's what Jesus is trying to make very clear to these guys, understanding, like, listen, if you want the full picture of me, you can't have it, first of all, without death. You have to understand that I am here to save you. I must die apart from the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. This is actually for your good. You can't save yourself. Stop trying to. This is what's necessary for your life. It's also necessary that I must rise again. I must defeat death. I am going to give you the hope of newness of life. That you can live with me forever. That the power of sin will be no more. That you can be a brand new creation. We didn't even get all the way down to... Verse 1 of chapter 9 where Jesus begins to foreshadow a little bit of what's in store for them. Understanding the glories that await this newness of life. And he's going to give them a foretaste of that by revealing to, him, to them all the glories of who he really is. It's going to be the, the culmination of his revelation to them in the transfiguration. Which you need to come back for next week when Jamar's going to unpack that for you. So I'm not going to jump to that too much. I'll save that for him. fourthly. Soon, your soul has eternal value. Your soul has eternal value. You know, we didn't really get to the last part of Jesus describing what it means to follow him. But look at verse 35 through 39 again here. Or 38. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever saves his, uh, uh, sorry, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Think about this. You learn over time. <laughs> what will someone gave, give in exchange for their soul? The answer to that is a lot. People are willing to surrender a lot in exchange for their soul. You're going to learn over time that people are willing to exchange a lot in pursuit of happiness in the name of joy. But Jesus is here to remind you that one thing and one thing only is going to go with you from this life. You can't take money you can't take your family you can't take your dog sorry that's what you're hoping you can't even take your body you certainly can't take your cell phone the one asset that god has given to you of eternal value is your soul and your soul will live forever in one of two states either glorifying god in worship or glorifying God in punishment. Either way, God gets the glory. Student, it's essential that you understand that truth today. But it's also important that you understand finally that those who follow Jesus have zero regrets. Those who choose to follow Jesus, student, live with zero regrets. It can be tempting to think that after all I've said this morning that Jesus is kind of a buzzkill. (laughs) That Jesus is just painting a picture of doom and gloom that to follow him means it will be a life full of suffering, hardship, and void of any joy. And to be sure, student, following Jesus is hard, and yes, it necessarily involves some degree of suffering. I'm not going to tell you this morning that it doesn't. But to think of it as void of joy would be a grave misunderstanding. Notice what he said back in verse 35. Whoever would save his life, in other words, try to cling on to it as long as possible, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Save it. Think of this reality this morning, student. There is not a single person in heaven today who regrets following Jesus. You will not find a single person who regrets that decision. You will not find a single person who doubts why they followed Christ. I've said it before, do not see Jesus' authority as a threat to your well-being, but see his authority for what it really is, that it is good and loving and it is calling for you to lay down your pride, to lay down your life and to follow him. And he promises you, he promises you, student, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. So let's pray. God, thank you again for our time and the meditation you've given us this morning through your word. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus in all his beauty, all his glory, all his sufficiency, to know that he is worth it. That he is worth all of our life. He is worth us laying down all of our pride, all of our ambitions, all of our pursuits to ultimately follow him with our lives lord i can't i can't make that clear with just persuasive words that is something that you have to use to change hearts so please do that remove from us the the garbage that is cultural christianity here even in the midwest that just tacks Jesus on as if he's some accessory to add to our lives, that he's some box to be checked or some uh, event to go to. Help us to see Jesus as the true Savior, the Messiah, the one who has given everything for us so that we might follow him. Lord, he is worth that. So please do that work today in the lives of our students, I ask. Amen. All right. Thank you guys.